Hi, word nerds and history geeks. You're tuned in to say what? 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 Just in case you're wondering, I have a real weak spot for curiosities and curious people. You know, people who behave irrationally, rule breakers, and general riffraff. I'm quite fond of these people. Well, when I say fond, I don't mean in the take me to your leader type of fondness, but rather I just want to understand what makes people behave the way they do. And that's why Stockholm Syndrome is this episode's focus. Are you ready to learn more about this phenomenon? Let's go. I'm Joe Vraka. I write books and I argue about words all the time. And each episode, I'm going to rub shoulders with the glitterati of the English language, where we'll learn that some of the more colourful and even basic words that we use every day have very un-English origins. Where do words come from? Who came up with them? Who polices them? And what is the secret history of words that we use every day? Let's find out. You know, I use the term Stockholm Syndrome here and there. And while I know what it means and how to use it, I didn't actually know where it originated and what Stockholm had to do with it. For some reason, I thought it was something to do with the kidnapping of Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army. More about that later. So while the term originates from around that same era, it was actually an altogether different kidnapping event that led to the term being coined. So what exactly is Stockholm Syndrome and what does it have to do with Stockholm? From the Botanica Dictionary, Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological response where a captive begins to identify closely with his or her captors as well as with their agenda and demands. And the term was coined because of an event that took place over six days in Stockholm, Sweden in August of 1973. Let me take you back to 1973. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Richard Nixon was president of the United States and Watergate was about to become a hotel on everyone's lips. Wall Street crashed. The Vietnam War was in full colour across TV screens. Roe versus Wade was passed. The first handheld mobile phone was invented by Martin Cooper. Yeah. Life expectancy was around 71 years. The Sydney Opera House was opened. The Exorcist was the highest grossing film of the year. Monica Lewinsky was born. And over in the country in question, Sweden, ABBA was yet to compete at the Eurovision Awards, but they had already made a name for themselves in their home country with their debut album, Ring Ring. And then one day in August, four hostages were taken during a bank robbery. Over the course of six days, they were held in the vault of the Credit Bunken, a bank on Normalstorg in Stockholm, by 32-year-old parolee Jan-Erik Olsen. Olsen entered the bank and withdrew a submachine gun, which he later referred to as his lawyer, and he fired at the ceiling, calling out, The party has just begun! <coughs> Olsen proceeded to take four hostages, all bank employees, and they were Kristen Enma, Elizabeth Oldgren, Birgitta Lundblad, and Sven Safstrom. Police converged 
quickly and rallied. But in the meantime, a plainclothes policeman, Morgan Rylander, approached Olsen and they had a bit of a chat. Well, more than a chat. Olsen not only got Rylander to empty the bank of staff and customers, but he asked him to sing a song. And Rylander complied, gently singing Elvis Presley's Lonesome Cowboy. During negotiations, Olsen asked for the release of a prison friend, Clark Olofsson, who was brought to the bank to assist him. He also asked for three million Swedish kroner, two guns, bulletproof vests, helmets and a getaway car. The entire event was televised. It was a big deal. And Olsen even managed to speak with the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palm, telling him that he would kill the hostages if his demands were not met. An hour into the siege, and they're now inside the vault, one of the hostages, Elizabeth Oldgren, she complained of claustrophobia. So Olsen tied a rope around her neck, you can't make this stuff up, and allowed her out of the vault to catch some air. I couldn't go far, Oldgren said later to the New Yorker, and I was on a leash that he held, but I was free. I remember thinking he was very kind to allow me to leave the vault. Another hostage, Kristen Enmark, was later allowed to go to the bathroom unleashed and she came across some police who were hiding. When they asked her how many hostages there were, she indicated with her fingers and later she said, I felt like a traitor. Huh. So a few things happened during those six days in Stockholm, but the most curious of all was that the hostages grew increasingly distrustful of the authorities and developed a sort of kinship with their captors. In fact, when one of the hostages, that's Kristen, spoke with the Swedish Prime Minister Palm, she said that she trusted her captors fully and feared the police. And when the police commissioner entered the bank to check on the hostages as part of the negotiations, he was met with resentment from them instead of relief. On the last day of the siege, when police drilled through the ceiling of the vault, Olsen fired his weapon and threatened to kill the hostages if any gas attack was attempted, which is what the police were planning. Despite the threats, the police used tear gas on August 28, and both Olsen and Olofsson surrendered after an hour. But upon surrender, the kidnappers and their hostages embraced. And as the police seized them, two of the hostages cried, Don't hurt them, they didn't harm us. Kristen Enmark received a bullet from Olsen's gun as a memento, and she shouted to the handcuff Olofsson, Clark, I will see you again. She later described him as a little bit Che Guevara and a little bit Jesus. After the release from the siege, all four hostages continued to defend their captors. We were more afraid of the policemen than these two boys, said Kristen Enmark, according to the Times. She admitted that they were all having a good time. She even went on to tell police that she had held hands with her captor. Perhaps it sounds a little like a cliche, she said, but he gave me tenderness. Yes, we held hands, but there was no sex. It made me feel enormously secure. It was what I needed. The hostages even visited their captors in prison, and Kristen Enmark formed a lasting friendship with Clark Olofsson. And while the Stockholm siege may have been the origin of the term, which we'll get into more in a sec, 
It wasn't until around 12 months later that it really became part of popular culture. There's been a big kidnapping on the West Coast. What is undoubtedly the most famous case of Stockholm Syndrome has to be that of Paddy Hearst in 1974. Hearst was the heir of the William Randolph Hearst newspaper empire and she was kidnapped by a guerrilla group, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Hearst was abducted from her flat in Berkeley, California and was said to have been brainwashed, humiliated and coerced into making public statements, condemning the capitalist crimes of her family. I renounced my class privilege when Sin and Cujo gave me the name Tanya. While I have no death wish, I have never been afraid of death. For this reason, the brainwashed duress theory of the pig Hearst has always amused me. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hearsts. Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. But you know, she went on to help her captors in a series of bank robberies in San Francisco. She was caught a year later and she tried, in vain, to use Stockholm Syndrome as a defence. But the courts were having none of that and they established clear collusion. There was a very early case of Stockholm Syndrome, but it wasn't in Stockholm, nor was it classified as a syndrome at all at that time. In 1933, Mary McElroy was taking a bath in her home in Missouri when she was abducted. McElroy was taken to a farmhouse and chained to a wall. She was released unharmed 29 hours later when her ransom was paid. During the trial, McElroy met with the families of the kidnappers and she expressed sympathy for them. And when one of the criminals was sentenced to hang, she contested the penalty. Less than six years after the kidnapping, Mary McElroy was found dead in her bedroom, having shot herself in the head. In her suicide note, she wrote, My four kidnappers are probably the four people on earth who don't consider me an utter fool. You now have your death penalty, so please give them a chance. Much more recently, the case of abducted 10-year-old Natasha Campush has brought Stockholm Syndrome back into everyday parlance. Although, I'm not sure I see it that way. She was 10 years old when she was captured. Let's tell that story. In March of 1988, Campbell was abducted from her home by Wolfgang Prick Lockpill and held in a cellar for more than eight years. The five square metre room was hidden behind a cupboard with a solid concrete door. It had no windows and was completely soundproof. For the first six months, Campbell was unable to leave the space at all. After a few years, she was allowed upstairs into the rest of the house, but was sent back to the cellar at night and while her captor was at work. They even came to have breakfast together, and in later years, she was seen outside in the garden alone and was said to look happy and pretty chill, not trying to escape at all, even though she was on her own. Pricklapil let her leave the house once she turned 18 and even took her skiing, but he didn't release her. According to Campush in the documentary Natasha Campush, 3096 Days in Captivity, she began to feel sorry for her captor and cried when she learned that he'd committed suicide and even lit a candle for him at the morgue. But she's insulted by reports that she suffered from Stockholm Syndrome, saying that it doesn't describe the complex relationship with her kidnapper. Here's the thing though, Campush now owns the house where she was imprisoned. And while she doesn't live in it, she's said to be a regular visitor. 
So who came up with the term Stockholm Syndrome and what exactly is it? During the siege in Stockholm, police used the assistance of a psychiatrist and criminologist, Nils Bejerot. And it was Bejerot who coined the term that we would all come to know as Stockholm Syndrome. He called it, please excuse me, Normal Stork Syndromet after the normal stork square where the robbery took place, meaning normal stork syndrome. Now, while Bejerot labeled the phenomenon, it was actually Dr. Frank Ockberg who studied it in greater detail. Stockholm syndrome is also known as trauma bonding or terror bonding. In the early 20th century, Dr. Anna Freud, who is Sigmund's daughter, called the reaction identification with the aggressor, and it's a sort of defense mechanism. Now, according to WebMD, Stockholm syndrome is an emotional response, and it happens to some abuse and hostage victims when they have positive feelings towards an abuser or captor. While it isn't a psychological diagnosis, it is a way of understanding what can happen between a captor and an abuser. A bond can grow between them, which leads to really confusing feelings. Stockholm syndrome is somewhat related to brainwashing, but put simply, psychologists believe that the bond is created when the captor threatens the life of the hostage, then chooses not to kill them, which leads to feelings of gratitude. As the 1933 case of Mary McElroy proves, it can take only a few days for this bond to occur. I mean, in her case, it was less than 29 hours. Victims see small acts of kindness in the middle of turmoil and they feel gratitude. So they become hypervigilant to their captors' needs and even develop a negative attitude towards authorities who are trying to save them. Today, police officers have come to expect it when dealing with long-term hostage cases. And while not all kidnapping leads to Stockholm Syndrome, in fact, really, it's quite rare, it can definitely be witnessed in different scenarios where oppression leads to loyalty, like abusive relationships, including those between adults and children, prisoners of war, and cult members. Some psychologists don't consider it a syndrome at all. And some women argue that the whole discussion about Stockholm Syndrome is sexist. And when you think about it, it's kind of true because nearly all reported victims are women. But you might say, isn't that just a fact? Maybe, maybe not. The thing is that there's this inherent implication that women are not as resilient as men and it's this weakness that leads them to empathise with their abductor. I mean, whatever. Even Natasha Kampusch poo-poos this in a 2010 interview when she said, I find it very natural that you would adapt yourself to identify with your kidnapper, especially if you spend a great deal of time with that person. It's about empathy, communication, looking for normality within the framework of a crime is not a syndrome. It's a survival strategy. I mean, that sounds pretty smart, actually. But what about Stockholm Syndrome in art? It certainly has been a muse for many artists, including one of my favourite songs by British band Muse called, yep, Stockholm Syndrome, which has an incredible guitar solo. While the song's title references the events of 1973, it really refers to the more personal. When you love someone so much, they hold you captive despite hurting you. And you know what? It features as a theme in many, many films, like this one. Sweet Hostage from 1975. Martin Sheen plays a 31-year-old escapee from a mental facility when he abducts a very young Linda Blair, who is illiterate. He takes her to a cabin in the woods, teaches her to read, and they fall in love. Ew. But my favourite 
is Pedro Almodovar's Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, or in Spanish, Atame. This cult classic from 1989 features Victoria Abril as the former porn star who is kidnapped by a very young and very hot Antonio Banderas, who kidnaps her because he believes his destiny is to marry her and father her children. Shenanigans ensue and the kidnappee tells her captor to keep her tied up so she won't run away. I love that film. Please watch it if you get a chance. And what about Phantom of the Opera and Beauty and the Beast? Aren't they just classic cases of Stockholm Syndrome? I think so. There's something sweet and almost kind But he was mean and he was coarse and unrefined And now he's dear and so unsure I wonder why I didn't see it there before One last thing, there is an opposite to Stockholm Syndrome, and honestly, this would be so me. It's called London Syndrome, and it describes a situation where the hostages don't cooperate with their captors, and this may lead to death, as the event that the syndrome is named after demonstrates. In 1980, Iranian separatists invaded the Iranian embassy in London, demanding the release of a list of prisoners. Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister at the time, refused their demands. Bless her heart. And so did the hostages, who refused to do the captor's bidding. And one of these was particularly argumentative. So they threw him out of the embassy window. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere, right? See you next time. Say What? The podcast was brought to you by me, Joe Vraka. Sound engineering by Jeff Willis. You can follow the show for free on Spotify, Apple, and all your favorite apps. Look for Say What? The podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at Say What? The podcast, where I share some of my favorite and sometimes least favorite words. <laughs>